Building Local Power, a podcast dedicated to thought-provoking conversations about how we can challenge corporate monopolies and expand the power of people to shape their own future. I'm Jess Delfiaco, the host of Building Local Power and Communications Manager here at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. For more than 45 years, ILSR has worked to build thriving, equitable communities where power, wealth, and accountability remain in local hands. Uh, Today, really excited to talk about a new coalition of which ILSR is a part. It's called Small Business Rising, um, and it's a growing group of independent businesses who are asking policymakers to rein in monopoly power. Uh, I'm joined by my colleague, Mary Timmel, as well as Danny Kane, who's the owner of the Raven Bookstore in Lawrence, Kansas, as well as Natasha Amet, who's the owner of Whisk, which is a kitchen store in Brooklyn. Uh, Welcome to the show, all of you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having Thank us. Thank you so much. Um, and I think we can get started if, if um, Danny and Natasha, if you just want to give very brief descriptions of your businesses and your background. Sure. I, I'll go first. Um, so my name, as you said, is Natasha Amot. I'm the owner of Whisk, which is a kitchenware retail store. We're located in Brooklyn, New York. Um, I opened Whisk in 2008. Uh, in 2018, I had three locations, two in Brooklyn, one in Manhattan. Uh, now I have just the one location located in uh, downtown Brooklyn. And we sell everything uh, needed for kitchenware. And we are brick and mortar and also online. Yeah, and I'm Danny. I'm the owner of The Raven. The Raven has been a small new bookstore in Lawrence, Kansas since September 1987. I'm the third owner. Uh, 1,200 square feet, about 13,000 books. We're working on a move to a new location just around the corner, uh, but uh, just longtime readers and advocates for literacy and small business in, uh, in a small college town in the Midwest. Uh, could you both talk about... Um how your businesses or how your industries have changed over the last year with the pandemic or any other um, kind of ongoing trends that you want to point to? I can jump in on this one first. Um, The most important trend to look at with independent book selling is, of course, the shift to online. Um, We haven't had customers browsing in our store for a full year. Um, so we, we shut down browsing as soon as lockdown started when the county health department told us to, um, which we were in agreement with, but then in in order to protect our workers and and because of our small space and online business, we've, we've remained closed, but the, the trend overall, I mean, it was a good year. 2020 was a good year for print books. Sales were up and a lot of publishers had pretty healthy years, uh, but independent bookstore sales were down. Um, which is a really sobering statistic. And it tells me that people are going to Amazon for their books as opposed to independent bookstores, even though many, many independent bookstores have made the pivot to online sales like us, uh, still people continue to go to Amazon instead of bookstores. So it's a trend that's alarming to me. And it's a trend that I'm kind of keeping a close eye on. Did you already have an online presence beforehand? I mean, I assume it had to expand and adapt um, accordingly, but or was it all brand new? No, we did. We uh, had been selling books online since 2011. Uh, in every year since then, except for last year, 99% of our sales were in store and 1% was online and that flipped uh, last year. So last year, 1% of sales were over the phone and 99% of sales were through the website. Um, we had had a couple, fortunately, we had a couple kind of big moments where we got a ton of online orders and that kind of prepped us to have a workflow ready to go. And we just kind of made that that emergency website overload workflow has been every day for the past 365 days. 
but yeah, the, the American Booksellers Association offers a great kind of online platform called Indie Commerce that comes preloaded with, with basically every book that's in print and you just plug in. So we don't have to upload all of our inventory to our website. Um, and it's pretty easy to start a, a bookstore's website online through that system. And we, we did that. Um, and, and since have gotten much better and much more adept at using it, but it was ready to go. So we did a quick pivot last March. Yeah. And, you know, I'll say WISC, uh, I very much kind of similar trends that Danny has noticed with bookstores. So I'm selling housewares, right? Um, under the pandemic, we uh, had a, a tough spring. Um, we had to make a number of changes with our online selling. Um, we really had to dig in deep with our customer service once we were allowed to be back open. And that did work for us. So the pandemic year, given that everybody was at home cooking a lot more, actually meant that WISC was able to be okay. Um, but I think the more important trend here is something that started in the housewares industry, probably I would say 2014, 2015. Um, that's when I first began to notice that things were changing for my business, for other kitchen stores in New York City, and for the huge category of housewares overall. Um, I noticed a decrease in fourth quarter sales, probably in 2015. And it completely threw off the growth trend that we've been experiencing for seven years prior. Um, so I started to kind of take a look and started to think about what was going on here. And I started to talk with other kitchen stores in the city, and I could see that we were not just the only one going through something like that. Um, and now in 2021, I can tell you that New York City has lost five independent kitchenware stores in the last few years. Um, there's only four of us that are left. Um, there are some stores that specialize in knives or restaurant supply oriented. But if you look at just those that are selling all things kitchenware, we've lost some real treasures in the city in the last five years and we're not seeing replacements coming on board. Um, even some of the other larger housewares stores like a Sur La Tabla, they've also cut back their footprint um, and they actually filed for chapter 11 bankruptcy last year. You know and I'll just note that pre-pandemic we would always have an annual trade show in Chicago and all the retailers would come together with the suppliers and for probably since about 2015 the number one conversation when you stepped into a booth was uh, well how are you doing which was always code for well how are you doing with Amazon um, and I think that's just exactly what has been going on for the last few years. And that was going to lead to a question that I wanted to, to address with both of you. When did you make a connection that the issues you were seeing in, in the changes in your industry, um, was there a, a moment when it sort of crystallized that it was Amazon and, and their, you know, that it was monopoly power that was really the challenge that you were facing? As small business owners, you face challenges all the time, right? Very different things happen in your communities. But when when did it start to crystallize? And I think Natasha, you touched on it a little. Yeah. But how did that how did that look to you in your sales and on the ground? Yeah. Uh, well, just to kind of play off what I was saying a moment ago, um, I was remember being in my store, and a couple was looking at a KitchenAid stand mixer, which is a it's a high ticket item, right? And they came up to me and they said, "Wow, would you consider?" dropping the the price and I was kind of like well why would I want to do that because it's an item that I run a very low margin on below 30 percent and um, it turns out they showed me their phone and of course this is you know way back 2015 or so um, and but they showed me their phone and they said um, well look at the price that it's selling for on Amazon and he, 
what I realized is that not only was Amazon selling that stand mixer for below map, minimum advertised pricing, it was actually selling it below cost. And so that was my trigger when I was like, oh my goodness. And that's when I discovered predatory pricing. And, you know, for me, predatory pricing in the housewares industry has just been a critical issue because, you know, it's all about what benefits the consumer. And at the end of the day, antitrust law is all based on, well, is the consumer benefiting? And if the consumer is benefiting, then there's no problem. Um, but the problem with this, of course, is that we're just thinking of us citizens as consumers. We're not thinking of the fact that we're also creators, we're builders, we're traders, we're all of that and more. Um, and so that, that, and I would just add in as well that free freight. Um, I think Amazon has really gone to town in order to build its consumers, um, its shoppers, its loyal customers. They've really gone to great extents to provide free shipping, as we all know. And that's part of the predatory pricing model. And I think it completely causes individuals to misunderstand the true costs of shipping um, and the true cost of value of producing goods and selling those goods. The free freight thing is is such a good point, and it's really altering people's expectations of what are possible, um, of what's possible, of how long shipping should take, and like only one company can ship goods that you know that fast and at that low cost, and they're doing it on purpose to hook people and drive their competitors out of business. I just everything you just said resonates with me so much, Natasha. In the book industry, it's funny because like Amazon picked books first, and so we've been kind of watching them since the '90s. Um, but I started as a bookseller in 2015. And so I'm like an Amazon native bookseller. Uh, it's never, I've never seen a book industry that wasn't totally kind of hijacked by Amazon and, and their policies and their pricing. Um, but I will say that generally my bookstore, um, we had a Borders Books and Music across the street um, from 1997 to 2011. And I think that's we spent a lot of time worrying about that and figuring out how to deal with that. And I think that's emblematic of the industry as a whole. In the 90s, we were really focused on, on the big bookstore chains and, and their pricing and what they would do to the independent bookstore market. But then once that, that problem was kind of solved, or at least we moved on, Amazon was there waiting um, and had been getting more powerful all along. So I think as the chains, as the, the American Booksellers Association even litigated some of these pricing issues with, with the big chains. But as soon as we moved on from that, there was Amazon much bigger and much more frightening. So I think it was in the early aughts that it really became a, a big issue. But I mean, we've been watching it since the 90s, since Amazon started selling books online, because we're the first industry that they, they set their sights on. Um, and, and all of this stuff that they're doing everywhere else is, was happening to books first. Yeah, you know, and I'll just throw out another example that I see in housewares. Um, and it, it's not specific to Amazon, but it's actually, it's quite interesting. I've been looking into it more recently. And that is the role of the suppliers that we work with. Um, and I think there's been two trends. One is that, um, and this one has been going on for quite some time. A lot of the houseware suppliers really favor the power buyers like the Bed Bath & Beyonds, like the Amazons, I'm sure as well, um, with favorable pricing. If they don't do it through direct lower pricing raw cost, then they do it through things like better terms, um, they give them defects allowances, which basically means they can deduct as if there were defects in product shipments to them. Um, they get to charge outrageous amounts of money for advertising 
a product for a supplier. Um, they also get to even do things like if they get a shipment in from a big supplier that doesn't have the labels on correctly the way that a Bed Bath & Beyond would like them to be, Bed Bath & Beyond actually gets to charge them for that mistake. Um, so all these little ways in which uh, suppliers basically feed into making it more difficult for the small independent retailers like a WISP to do really well. And then to link that back to Amazon, what I've been noticing in the last couple of years is that I have had to sign so many third-party sales agreements, meaning that I am promising not to sell on an Amazon or any other third-party platform. Now, I am not the type of business owner who wants to sell on Amazon, um, but it's fascinating because what I'm seeing is that a lot of my big suppliers are saying, okay, no other sellers on here except for me and Amazon. And so I think a lot of these suppliers for a long time were struggling with how to control pricing on Amazon, but then they were realizing, oh my goodness, what an incredible catchment, right? And I want in on that. So now a lot of my suppliers are selling direct to the consumer. And yet here I am as a retailer with brick and mortar rents to pay. And I think I'll, I'll chime in a little bit as, you know, in looking at small business rising and the multiple, um, you know, we've got over 20 partner organizations signed on. These issues go across industry. And we've heard a lot about, and we have a lot of detailed information online. And it's, you know, one of the things that we're building toward is that, you know, there's supplier issues in grocery, there's supplier issues in outdoor gear and in books. And so it's not just the industries that we're talking about here on this phone call or this podcast. And I think one of the things I wanted to, to ask you all is when you're thinking about, you know, addressing this problem, when was it that you realized you had kind of hit your maximum capacity to fight back by yourself? And why, you know, what, when did you start looking to other businesses to have this conversation or your trade associations or your neighborhoods? Was there sort of a moment when you realized as a, as a business owner with your store that you'd, you'd maxed out, right? It's a good question. I think I've always, um, since making, uh, anti-Amazon pro small business advocacy, part of the story we tell with our business, I've made a point to make sure that people know it's about more than books. It's about more than the Raven. It's about more than book prices. All of these are important. The Raven has a beloved community that cares about us very much and wants us to stick around. And the issue of books pricing is very important. But I, to make this whole thing seem like uh, this is just a single bookstore that's mad about its prices, uh, makes it too easy to write it off. Uh, it's much too narrow of a view of the argument. And, and as soon as you do any reading in the Amazon issue or about big tech monopolies, you realize just how many industries are affected by this and how big Amazon is. And so coalition building and teaming up both at the local and the national level is vital to actually get something done and also to convince people of the importance of this. Because I just, I don't want to be one business complaining about one competitor. Uh, and to kind of prevent myself from being written off like that it's from the get-go uh we've teamed up with uh with businesses here in lawrence and and businesses and people across the country to make sure uh to convey the scale of what's going on yeah i, I could not agree more danny i think you hit it right on on the nail of the head when you talked about it as neighborhood 
Um, I think that is what we are trying to preserve. We're trying to preserve not just our independent one-off location stores, we're trying to keep neighborhoods dynamic and places that we want to be in, places that we want to invest in, whether as renters or as home buyers. Um, and you know, I saw that so clearly when I had to close my Williamsburg, Brooklyn location. That was my, my original store. I'd been there for 10 years and I couldn't renew the lease because the landlord wanted a remarkable hike in rent like when and when I say remarkable it was truly <laughs> remarkable and I was already paying a high level um and I was I was able to do that I was actually paying a high rent for a long time and I was comfortable with that because we had such a great following but when we announced to the public that we were closing the the anger the sadness the frustration was so palpable in the community and it was for WISC, but it was for what all that WISC closing represented. Just what Danny was saying. It's about the fact that if it's not WISC, it's the, it's the other coffee shop. It's that little boutique clothing store. Um, and just this sense of sadness that people were losing something that they really loved. And the number of people who remarked to me, that's it. I'm done with this neighborhood. I'm leaving was was really astonishing. Um, and I think that's so much about what we're talking about. I think it's time to take a short break. We'll be right back. In a minute. Thanks for listening to Building Local Power. If you're enjoying our conversation, I hope you'll consider heading over to ILSR.org slash donate to help support our work. I also want to take this moment to encourage you to check out smallbusinessrising.net, and that's where you can learn even more about independent businesses' efforts to fight back against monopoly power and everything we're discussing today. Um, With that, let's head back to my conversation with Danny, Natasha, and Mary. I was just going to ask if we could dig into that a little bit more. I'm really curious about um, how you guys see examples of the importance of independent businesses to communities. I mean, not just importance, but how integral you are to the web of a, of a happy, healthy community. Um, if you have any specific examples to share. I totally do. I talk about this all the time because I love this story so much. Uh, and it's, I think it's a perfect example of how to respond to difficult times with grace and how it, it, the small business can build community. And it involves at least three small businesses in Lawrence, Kansas. So uh, Ladybird Diner is a kind of a small neo diner right across the street from us. Um, they never did carry out. They were not ready to go remote. Um, so when the pandemic hit, hit and the, the restaurants shut down, they um, they had a pantry full of food and they just made everything into, into bag lunches that they gave away. Uh, and they were so stunned by the response and the need in the community that they pivoted to a food pantry model and started to raise money. And every day, every weekday for the past year, they've given away 200 free sack lunches to people in the community uh, who need it and completely rewriting their business model. It's not even a business anymore. They're just raising funds to distribute food. And one of the ways they, they raised money is, is the owner, who's a great writer, self-published an essay collection about the pandemic, about restaurant life. She got it printed with the help of University Press of Kansas, a small business in, in Lawrence. And she sold it through the Ladybird Diner site and here at the Raven. And we've sold more than a thousand copies of this book. And so it's, it's three businesses uh, kind of teaming up, um, not even with the idea of making money, because beyond what we take to like pay for the, the person um, putting the book into the envelope and delivering it, we don't take any money on the book. 
each book sale provides four uh, sack lunches for customers. And so I just think that's a great way. That's a perfect example of how a small business can pivot, can take care of its community uh, and, and can adapt and, and team up to create positive change. Natasha, I didn't mean to cut you off, but I know when we'd spoken before, when you talked about your community and your neighborhood, you talked a little bit about the impact of the delivery van pollution and in that area as well. So if you had a, if you had a different story to share here, but I also know that it was something you really cared about, about how that fulfillment center and how those warehouse deliveries are, all of that extra traffic are really impacting your community too. And I didn't know if you wanted an opportunity to talk about that on this platform too, because I think it's really important when I think about how you all exist in your community, it is those overlapping issues. It's very much not just how Amazon's impacting you, but how their impact is affecting your neighbors and the quality of the air that the people that you live by, you know, all of those issues as well. Well, yeah, I mean, so the um, downtown Lawrence is an, there's a trade organization for the downtown businesses and they've done a really good job pushing the city to let us adapt. Um, so each business can claim up to two parking spots for curbside pickup to encourage safe operation. Um, we've done that. Many, many other places have done that as well. And, and the, the Amazon drivers with just their insane quotas and their need to deliver so many packages per day um, often are in a hurry to find a parking spot. And so they'll, they'll kind of park and idle in our curbside parking spots. And we make a point not to confront them about it because their job is hard enough as it is. But just the, the needs and the conditions that they're put under to take these curbside pickup spots from small businesses. And then you have all of these people, 200 people coming downtown for lunch and eating in the open air. And the, the air is like smogged up by the fleet of Amazon vans that descends onto downtown Lawrence every day. Um, you know, whereas one business is trying to create a place where people can be nourished for free if they need it. Another business is literally pumping smog and emissions uh, into the air through their vans. Uh, so it's just two wildly contrasting takes on the, the downtown spaces commons. I'll, I'll just piggyback on that and say um, Amazon's gone on a total warehouse leasing spree in New York City over the pandemic. So they, um, they just leased a very large space in Queens and then two fulfillment centers or future fulfillment centers pretty close to where Whisk is in Brooklyn, um, right down by the waterfront in Red Hook. And I think overall it's about 1.6 million square feet of space now just added to their collection. And that's all about trying to get product to customer in hours. Um, and so that congestion that Danny just spoke of, it is enormously a problem here in New York City. It is unbelievable. And the city is now actually taking away parking spots, which on the face of it, I don't have a problem with taking away parking spots, um, but they're specifically doing it to make them into loading zones for, for the Amazon and the UPS trucks. And can I ask if you, you know, when you have deliveries come in, how hard would it be for your business to get a designated loading zone in front of? <laughs> There's no way I could. Yeah. <laughs> I, um, I don't have those powers. <laughs> I'm sorry to laugh, but uh, yeah, same, same boat here. That's when we missed the uh, visual medium with podcast because everyone's face at that question was <laughs> right. <laughs> answered the question. No <laughs> You know, and I wanted to say back to your question about, you know, why are independent businesses so important? Um, we also have so many examples we could point to New York City of businesses helping out, but it's also, um, I always think about it as, well, imagine your community if you didn't have 
that bookstore, that local pharmacy, that kitchenware, housewares kind of store? What would your community look like? You wouldn't have as many options, right, for things you want to buy. Um, you may not have the affordability you need. I think small businesses are really good at identifying local need and pricing availability because they know they're not going to last. Um, and it's really important. They can't afford to say, well, we'll try it out for two years and see how it goes. No, we go into it to say, we really need this to work out for ourselves. So we're going to do it well from the beginning. Um, and I think that there's a lot of spillover effects. I think commercial displacement is very tied into residential displacement. And I think we really need to understand that connection. If, if retail goes, then so do restaurants and bars. And then you've got empty streets that affects uh, culture, that affects morale. I, I mean, um, you, need, you need density and you need a variety of commerce to, to maintain communities. And if Amazon puts all the small retail out of business, every other type of small business is going to suffer. And then you lose what makes your communities unique and appealing to, for people to live there. I think that's really well put thank you um i had a question for mary mary could you just give us an overview of what small business rising is and what the goals of this campaign are yeah absolutely and then i'm gonna pivot to natasha and danny to talk about why this is uh you know something that's important to them because they have been engaged on this since I uh, met them. <laughs> and so so what we're doing with Small Business Rising is, you know, it's a coalition of, of trade associations and business organizations and also independent and small business owners from across the country. And what we're coming together to do is to address these issues, to, you know, stop tech monopolies, to block dominant corporations from engaging in, you know, these abusive and anti-competitive tactics that we've seen. And we can do that by making existing antitrust laws stronger and easier to enforce. So, you know, when we talk about legislation, it's not necessarily in all cases, new legislation. You know, there's rules that exist around this. And we wanna talk about, uh, you know, mega mergers and how we all hear all these different companies that merge together and, and create a super company that has the kind of power that Natasha and Danny were, were addressing and talking about with getting special loading areas and, and being able to set pricing below cost in order to make profits to drive out their competition. And it, you know, it's also come up here too that small business owners and independent business owners are innovators. They're makers, they're creators. They're folks that want a level playing field to do the work that they want to do. And it's not about you know, it's not about getting special treatment as small and independent business owners. It's about getting fair treatment. And what we've seen over the course of time and, and what's being expressed here very clearly is that it's an unfair situation. And this pandemic has only made Amazon stronger. And we want to talk about what's the vision of your community that you want to see when you know, when this, when this pandemic ends and we're, we're all able to kind of go back into our communities in the way that we were before, what community do you want there waiting for you? And how do we make that happen? Because we're facing a, a problem that was, has been there for a long time. And, you know, when we come back and we're visiting our small businesses again, Amazon is still going to be there. And these large monopolies are still going to be there. And they're still going to be you know, there's still going to be this competition. And so we want to have small business owners an opportunity through Small Business Rising to talk to their legislators, to share these stories of what they've experienced, and to talk about 
why they need these issues addressed. And it's for all of the reasons we've stated here. And it's also because these corporations are becoming, you know, when they're able to manipulate systems to get loading docks or to get treatment that other businesses aren't getting, that's becoming decision makers in communities. You know, they're deciding things on how beyond wages and environmental impact, they're deciding, you know, pushing for tax breaks for themselves or all the other ways that they dominate these conversations. And there's enough small businesses and there's enough small and independent businesses that care about this, that Small Business Rising is has come together with a really impactful launch last week. And we're going to continue growing and pushing to say that this is enough, right? We've had enough and we'd like to talk about how to make changes so that we can compete and exist and have these thriving local communities. And I'd love for, you know, Natasha and Danny to talk a little bit about what it is that has you here on a Tuesday afternoon, <laughs> taking time to talk about this and talk about what, what you want to see and how you want to see small business rising, working to make these changes. Sure. Um, so I have learned in the advocacy work I've been doing, which has really been probably since about 2016 or so, um, we need a new way of organizing. That seems very clear to me from my experience in New York City. It's hard. <laughs> um, and so why is it hard? We have, um, you know, and again, this is New York City experience, multiple languages. We have neighborhoods where you see clusters of immigrant-owned businesses um, that may not want to work necessarily with businesses, you know, in the in another borough. Um, you see a lot of sectoral alliances. You might see restaurants working together, um, perhaps bookstores working together. Um, certainly in housewares, we don't have enough of us to kind of form any alliances. Um, and I think we need something that kind of cuts across sectors. We need something that invites everybody into it. And we, we need the help because small business owners, we're busy. We are super busy running our businesses. And we do need a group like a small business rising who's going to help organize us, help hear our voices, and help um, corral those voices in the most effective ways. Um, you know, I think the other thing that has struck me very, very much is how popular Amazon has been, right? I mean, it is, I think there was some survey in 2018 where Amazon ranked as like the most popular company or something. And um, here in New York, we were, of course, considered to be the location for um, HQ2 which of course did not happen. But I think in that debate, what we saw a lot of is this conversation around, well, do we want to give subsidies to such a large corporation, which is a very worthwhile conversation to have. I was struck, however, by how few people really said, well, no, we don't want Amazon because look what it's doing to small businesses. That connection actually was not part of the common day conversation amongst elected officials in this city. So I think there's a lot still to do to really explain why it's so important to talk about monopoly and what it's doing to small businesses. So we need a wider platform like Small Business Rising to help do that. Yeah, I mean, I agree with all of that. I think it's it's a really smart idea, and, and Natasha covered a lot of my feelings about it. I think when I entered the book industry, we were very good at having this discussion among ourselves, and I had a, a lot of really great like conference discussions or at the bar after the conference discussions among booksellers about 
antitrust policy and Amazon and competitiveness and predatory pricing. But it struck me a couple of years ago, we weren't having this conversation with our customers at all. And for it to get anywhere, it couldn't be a closed loop among booksellers. And so we've been working really hard on doing that um, to some success, I think. But now I think the next step is to make it beyond our industry um, and to team up with a really broad coalition. I, I hear like David versus Goliath tossed around a lot because we're a little bookstore that has a really vocal anti-Amazon stance, but that's not how I see it because it affects so many people. And if we all get together, uh, we're not actually that small. And I think Small Business Rising is a really important way to do that. Um, and, and I also, I appreciate the, the um, lobbying and legislative help that a group like ILSR and Small Business Rising, the expertise they bring to this because it's not something I have a ton of experience with. And like Natasha said, I still think there's more to be done to explain these issues from a small business perspective to the government. And that's ultimately where a lot of the solutions lie. Uh, like Mary talked about with stronger enforcement of existing antitrust laws and in convincing legislators that small businesses are a part of this story and that Amazon can't be allowed to grow unchecked to their heart's content. Um, I, I appreciate the help, both the, the size of, of coalition building and building bridges across industries because we're all affected the same way and kind of making a strong legislative focus a part of this is why I'm really excited about Small Business Rising. Uh, and if I could just add on a couple more points to that, um, Danny's point about lobbying heft and weight is so critical. I mean, I think we can all agree that Jeff Bezos bought his mansion in DC for that very purpose. And um, I sure can't do that. Um, so I definitely think that lobbying power is, is so critical. Um, but I think it's also two other things. One, I think that, and we'll see how small business rising kind of develops and grows, but one of the issues that I felt here in New York City is that labor and small business are sometimes pitted against each other. Um, there is a debate around paid leave, which I think is one of the most important conversations that New York City, at least, and I'm, I think all of America has to come back to the table around, especially under this pandemic and all we've seen. Um, but in that conversation pre-pandemic about how to make effective paid leave happen, we saw uh, city council effectively pitting the small business owner against their staff. And it was a very awkward conversation. I think small business rising will hopefully be effective in bringing labor and small business together on the same side. Um, and then just a final point, we have the chambers, right? We have a lot of um, chambers here in New York, one in each borough. They are tremendous resources at times. They can provide a lot of technical assistance, but they're not thinking about policy. So a lot of the existing resources are really just about minor technical assistance. They're not going to the level of the policy change that we need to see. I think I'll just add real quick that, you know, we've already begun taking action um, at the end of February, early March, we convened a town hall with Representative Cicilline and a panel of experts, a number of our partners and small business owners like Natasha and Danny that got a chance to ask their questions directly to decision makers about how they're going to address antitrust reform. We had a very robust uh, chat full of attendees, over 400 attendees, attending a, a webinar entitled Reigning in Monopoly Power. So the interest is there. There is a lot of will. And I think it's absolutely about how we come together and we wield that power that we have because we're not alone. We just need to find each other to make this happen. I think on that note, and also seeing that we are just about out of time here, um, I'd like to end uh, for listeners or even for your customers who 
are listening to this and say like, oh, I care. I want to take action. Can they get involved with Small Business Rising? Are there local actions you would encourage them to take? Um, I guess any recommendations on that from any of you? Well, I, I think the, the um, one of the most important things you can do is just to make sure to support the small businesses you want to see there um, after this is all over and, and to kind of build your community in that way. Because um, those small businesses want to care for you and they really do appreciate um, your support. But um, also just read up and there's nothing stopping people, our customers, uh, from, from getting in touch with their legislators and sharing their concerns. I don't want to pin all of this on consumer choice. Um, I think that's kind of a, a false thing and perhaps even what Amazon would want us to do. Um, so to um, make sure pe if people have am concerns about Amazon or the difficulty of running a small business in their communities, to let the people making policy in, in power know that they have those concerns is really important. Yeah, 100%. Everything that Danny said is so critical. We just have to encourage our community to support that community if we want it to be there. And I think also sometimes what I increasingly find myself doing when I get into these conversations is I make the connection to the jobs that we provide. Um, and I think that for the most part, when you have a brick and mortar business with a, a sales job, a customer service associate job, these are jobs that do offer some opportunities for upward mobility. Um, they are jobs where you can discover the skills and strengths that your staff have, whether that be art skills, which has happened in my business, um, tremendous art ability, which has then allowed them to um, do our windows, do our sandwich boards, do our signage and get recognized by other people for other opportunities. So it's, it's that kind of conversation that if we want those jobs to be there for your friends, your neighbors, the next generation, then supporting local and supporting local brick and mortar is really important. Yeah. And I think I'll just add to, to build on that. It's, and, and I could talk for a long time about the way that folks who work in a small business are really impacted for the rest of their life and the skills that they learn and the way that they see a, a number of small business owners I've spoken with started out working at a small business and then opened up their own store and were able to learn and grow and become, you know, fuller, talented, dynamic engagement, as opposed to working in a warehouse where, you know, maybe there isn't a lot of upward mobility because you're seen as just kind of a cog in a machine. So I think that growth is really important. But uh, as far as getting involved and what folks can do and listeners can do, absolutely support, supporting your local small business. And Danny touched on it though, is that it's more than consumer choice. You know, Amazon has a dominant place in this, in this country and worldwide. And because of their monopoly power, they're able to muscle out choice. So consumers in a lot of areas don't have a lot of other options than dealing with Amazon. And that's why getting legislative and policy change is so important because they have been allowed to grow unchecked for so long that they are now dominating a lot of industry. And so being able to say that it's not, it's about how you choose to spend your time and your money, but it's about more than that. It's about the way that policy is made. And so, you know, at Small Business Rising, we'll welcome individuals to, to sign up, to stay informed and look for ways to engage. There's a lot of folks doing this work. The Athena Coalition has come together with organizations that are addressing a number of different ways that Amazon is, is harmful to our communities. So I'd encourage folks to take a look there. We, we've highlighted a few, which is environmental impact, the impact for workers, and it's a way to stay engaged in that. But you know, it's about, it's about choice and it's about taking action. So we have a petition you can sign to encourage Congress to break up Amazon. 
right? And to, to step forward. And when you see news stories that are talking about these issues and saying things, you know, news stories about a new warehouse opening or a fulfillment center, really thinking about what is that impact in your community going to look like? But I think it's just making sure that, you know, being thoughtful about the ways that you spend your money, but also being conscious of your power as an individual and as a community member to lift up what you want to see changed. With that, thank you guys so much for joining us today. And just so listeners know, we will have links to all the things that we talked about, to the petition, to the different resources, to your business websites on the post for this episode, which you can find at our website, ilsr.org. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This is wonderful. Yeah, absolutely. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Building Local Power podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. You can find links to what we discussed today by going to ilsr.org and clicking on the show page for this episode. That's ilsr.org. While you're there, you can sign up for one of our many newsletters and connect with us on social media. We hope you'll also take the opportunity to help us out with a gift that helps produce this very podcast and supports the research and resources we make available for free on our website. Finally, we ask that you let us know how we're doing with a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your podcasts. The show is produced and edited by me, Jess Del Fiaco. Our theme music is Funk Interlude by Dysfunctional. For the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, I'm Jess Del Fiaco, and I hope you'll join us again in two weeks for the next episode of Building Local Power. 